All right. Thanks, uh, everyone, for tuning back into another episode of the Discourse Collective. We're back with some more Sterner today. So if you're listening, thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. Um, it's me, Comrade Celery. I'm here with Vicky. And I'm at Death Pigeon, and I'm here, I guess. Yeah. We're, we're both here, more or less, in our own unique ways and our um, own unique places our own unique places um and we're getting back into sterner um uh, this is this is my first post hurricane episode um oh no, no actually uh that that was uh our our awesome uh 4chan episode um which was not as bad as it sounds if you haven't listened to it yet uh but i was no this is your first post hurricane uh episode with me so the first one that counts yeah and also um it's the first one that counts because it's the first one i'm recording on my actual uh professional podcaster mic um because when uh when the hurricane came uh, i live in south florida and my mom lives in central florida and uh i was like well if i'm gonna cast my lot between these two places i'm gonna get the fuck out of south florida and go up there and uh i i took my computer and like uh, a couple important documents with me because i didn't want them getting flooded if the waters came up and when i came back uh to south florida i left my computer up at my mom's place so i was without it when we recorded the last episode but i have since gotten it back so i'm i'm not recording on my shitty laptop shitty webcam mic I'm I'm recording on a real a real microphone and that's why I sound so good right now. But we're back with Sterner. Um and and what section are we discussing today, Vicky? We're uh, working on my intercourse. Not the whole thing because this is the longest section in the book, but the first half roughly. Yeah, it is pretty long. It's a, a I think a little over 100 pages, so we're going to be discussing what 222 to 275 uh 272 i believe 272 so 50 pages uh this was a hefty section it's dense there's a lot of ground to cover but first let's let's talk about the name of this section my intercourse right i i brought this up with you before we started recording and um i said you know uh i don't think that you know sterner means 
uh, sexual intercourse, but um, you know he talk he does talk about a few different kinds of intercourse, and seems like a a more appropriate word or maybe a, a word that helps to understand it better uh, would be relationships. He's talking about different relationships uh, that people have with each other, that people have with things, that people have uh, kind of with their place in the world, in society, etc. But I think that he probably meant the double entendre because that's just his sort of sense of humor. And he also brings up, for example, in uh, Stirner's Critics, two lovers together as an example of a association of egoists. So, so Stirner was aware of sexual intercourse, uh, if nothing else. Yeah, and so <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he was like, I'm going to name this after... I'm going to name this something that's very easily uh, mistaken for a sex thing. Right. But would you say that Sterner fucked? So you cut out there. Can you repeat? I said, would you say that Sterner fucked? Uh, he definitely fucked because his uh, first wife had a miscarriage. Oh, that's true. Well, uh... (laughs) 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 On that note, let's, uh, let's actually get into this episode. Um... So he starts off uh, by saying, In society, in the social group, at most, the human requirement can be satisfied while the egoistic must always come up short. So right off the bat, we already know uh, when, you know, it kind of sets the stage for what he means by my intercourse. We're talking about intercourse uh, between human beings, between individuals within society. And we're uh, reminded of this idea of the human requirement, this idea of uh, humanity or uh, the the good of humanity uh, as this kind of phantasm, right? Yeah, and he's also setting up this uh, conflict between uh the hum between the individual and society yeah um because there is it's a zero-sum game right between uh the more that the human being or the good of all the more that whichever ideal we ascribe to society the more this ideal has the less the individual the less there is for the egoistic right yeah he, he's not saying to be clear he's not saying a, a zero-sum game between individuals but a zero-sum game between society and the individual right he says that the character of a society is determined by the character of its member right the members of the society are its creators so when we think of society right we think of oh i'm a member of society but sterner's saying no not really you know not everyone is really a member of you might be living under society but you're not you don't have membership in society necessarily those who have membership in society those who are first class citizens so to speak are society's creators um and and living under society is a very key word choice because mm -hmm. he really sees society as something that is held over the individuals rather than something we are just a part of yeah absolutely and so the creators of the society for example in our own liberal uh, capitalist society the creators are the middle class the bourgeoisie um and because they are its creator society has their characteristics it is a bourgeois society yeah and so that really does uh that characterizes uh, the way society functions and so the whole of society, this nature of the civic, is uh, 
bourgeois nature. And uh, th- this comes into play later on, where he's talking about uh, property, and Byington translates Yates, uh, so Wolfie translates Yates apart as bourgeois property, which Byington had translated as civic property, and that's sort of uh, significant because uh, society is bourgeois society, so uh, the civic is bourgeois, but it's hard to see that unless you have it laid out in front of you. Right, and um, you know, you you also brought up earlier um, before we were recording that uh, Landstriker actually um, discussed this uh, in his introduction, and y- you and I believe that it, it's quite possible that Byington uh, perhaps chose to use the word civic rather than bourgeois deliberately, um, either as I suggested, um, because he, uh, you know, uh, I, I believe most likely had s- uh, certain liberal proclivities and therefore chose not to use the word bourgeois. Um, but but also possibly to avoid certain side eyes from censors who might mm-hmm. see t- this uh, talk of bourgeois property or bourgeois society as more dangerous than simply saying civic property or civic society. Mm-hmm. Now back to the text in the toward the beginning in the in the earlier parts of this section, I think Sterner gives two pretty interesting examples of different societies. Um, and it kind of challenges the way the reader may think of uh, what the reader may think of when they hear or read the word society. Uh, Sterner says the Christian people have produced two societies whose duration will keep equal measure with the continuing existence of those people. These are the societies, the state and the church. This is pretty interesting. We don't usually think of the church as a society um, or even necessarily the state um, for that matter. Uh, society, at least in my mind, when I hear or see the word society, I, it tends to have more of a, of a cultural meaning for me, or perhaps an economic, depending on, uh, the context, but it's usually not associated with the state and certainly not with the church. But this kind of, uh, it kind of, sh- kind of sheds a light on what exactly Sterner is speaking about when he speaks of society here. Yeah, and he does, he keeps on talking about society as not just the collection of people, but as a real institution we live under. And that's pretty significant to uh, his project. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, he it really highlights that when he says, for example, freedom of the people is not my freedom, right? We live in a society that respects the freedom of the people or the freedom of its people or the freedom of we the people, right? But this is not freedom for me, freedom for me as an individual. It's not freedom for the individual person. Yeah, it creates this, it creates a freedom for the people, but not freedom for any individual person. And he uh, talks about this in the context of, uh, yeah ostracism within uh, the uh, democratic society of uh, Athens and how the freedom of the people led to destroying the freedom for individuals through Mm -hmm. ostracism. And he says, and I think you kind of uh, touched upon this earlier, he says, uh, a people cannot be free except at the expense of the individual because the individual is not the main point of this freedom, but rather the people. The freer the people, the more bound the individual. Yeah, and he's really setting up this sort of counterintuitive idea that as society becomes more democratic, the individual 
is more put within hand bonds. And this isn't done as a defense of the less democratic society, but to show how by making things more under the uh, people as a whole, we see the individual as more of a threat. While when it's under indiv- when we're bound by individuals, they don't necessarily see the individual interests as a threat in themselves. Right, and under democratic societies, specifically, you know, these uh, liberal democratic societies or the d- democracy of Athens, this Athenian democratic tradition, right, um, to distinguish from more uh, anarchistic uh, conceptions of democracy, right? Um, yeah. So we're speaking of this kind of Athenian democracy, um, you know, with the idea of a people or a nation or whatever, uh, you kind of you build up the state or the people or society as a sacred idea, which, as you said, we live under. We live under the rule of whatever the ideal is. And democratic societies have a tendency of strengthening whatever its ideals are or reinforcing them or reifying them in various ways. And Sterner reminds us that everything sacred is a tie or a fetter. Everything sacred uh, holds us back as individuals, restricts us, uh, binds us up. And the stronger we make them, the weaker we make ourselves by comparison. Yeah, and I I think this really comes to a head when he talks about society as having its origins in the word sal, specifically the word gesellschaft, having its origins in the word sal, so society in hall or room. Society under this conception is a room which we are all put into and it is not a room of one's own it is yeah a room of all of ours together yeah and so he's like okay let's look at a let's look at a example of society by looking at prison prison is a society because we're all in in the most uh obviously forceful way because everyone in prison is forced under one roof and forced to live within that within a great hall of sorts and under the roof of the prison and this forms a society and he means this to show as an example of how all societies function just in less obvious ways yeah, I felt the uh, example of the prison society to be very interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, funny, maybe not in a, in a ha-ha way, but very much in line with Stirner's humor to use the example of a prison to demonstrate his conception of society, which he, uh, you know, uh, he views society as a negative thing and he wants his reader to understand it as a negative thing as well. So he chooses the idea of a prison to demonstrate that, which one can assume the reader will find uh, the idea of a prison to be a negative thing. Um, but second of all, um, you know, earlier when I brought up how Stirner says, well, the church is a society, uh, he kind of challenges our, our idea of what a society is. And here he does that again with his example of the prison as a society of itself. And I think it is really convincing to uh, describe prison as a society, even if it's not, even if you aren't willing to go all the way in with his, uh, idea of society as a bad thing prison certainly does form a society because it's a it's a place where lots of people live and these people living together have to live as a sort of a unit because 
they don't choose it, but they still are living together as a society. And not simply living, but he says, in a prison society, we collectively perform a task, operate a machine, set something in motion, right? The, the prison society is a society of producers. It produces something. Um, in the case of prisons in the U.S., uh, often literally, uh, you know, uh, prisoners will be forced to work to produce something of one kind or another. Um, and not only that, but prisons, you know, much like any other kind of society, have their own culture, their own rules, both written and unwritten, their own norms, uh, and their own different kinds of social interactions between people in the same rank of the prison hierarchy and between different ranks in the prison hierarchy. And here also he starts setting up the uh, dichotomy he presents between society and intercourse by saying, within prison society, all intercourse is seen as a plot against the society itself. Uh, like the room, the prison forms a society, a collective, a community, e.g. a community of labor. But no intercourse, no mutuality, no association. On the contrary, every association in prison and carries within itself the dangerous seed of a plot, which could, under favorable circumstances, sprout and bear fruit. But he says, now if I can't convince you with the, with the example of the prison, because granted, one doesn't usually enter the prison voluntarily and seldom remains within it voluntarily, but rather nurtures the egoistic desire for liberty. So he says, let's look at other communities, right? Um, ones that we, so it would appear, we gladly and voluntarily remain in without wanting to endanger them by our egoistic desires. And the first example he gives us is that of the family. And bringing family into this after going, well, as it seemingly right. doing this voluntarily is like sort of jarring to most people because they're like, wait, but I am voluntarily he with my family, right? Not only that, but the juxtaposition of the example of prison as a society next to family as a society, right? Yeah, and that's certainly evocative. But, you know, the point he makes here is uh, remember that in every society it's necessary for there to be a sacred ideal, right? Um, yeah. Because we live under the society, under we which... live under its sacred yes. ideal. And in the family, the sacred ideal is the family itself right yeah um, you know you will often hear people say family first right um it, it, which reinforces the idea of the family and you know uh sterner isn't necessarily saying that uh you know uh your family is something evil that you shouldn't want to be a part of he's just you know bringing us to question why why is it this ideal you know why must we hold the family as something sacred right um do we really voluntarily associate with uh, our family or you know w what are our motivations here right yeah and he's sort of arguing that the way families work they do impose themselves upon us and there is this this conflict between us and our family and and sets... again not our individual family members but the family as an ideal yeah and he sets this up in a legalistic way by talking about how someone who goes against the family as a criminal to the family rather than merely just 
betraying the family or something, but going against the law of the family. In a Prodigal way. son. And he gives us an example of this, uh, Romeo and Juliet, and specifically Juliet, as being someone who's going against the family by wanting to be with a Romeo, and how she's essentially made a criminal to the family by wanting to be with Romeo. Wanting to be with Romeo. Now we go from the the prison to the family and then to the state on page 234 is where I'm looking at specifically. Yeah, yeah. And I like how he lays out the state here. He says, what one calls a state is a web and network of dependence and devotion. It is a togetherness, a sticking together, in which those ordered together acquiesce to each other, or in short, depend on each other. It is the order of this dependence. If disorder triumphed, the state would come to an end. So, you know, when we see um, anarchists, protesters holding up signs that say become ungovernable, um, there's a reason for that. Yeah. It's firmly rooted in theory. Because the state is order. And I, I do like how he describes it as a web or a network. Um, because it is, it's complicated right it's very complicating um look at the united states and our our own uh the way our own government works we have a, a federal system right we have the uh the national government seated in washington and then each of the 50 states um and then, has its own government and then each city has its own government but also right, each right. county right and... and it's not even just cities and counties but there will be municipalities of various sizes and sorts and then special districts right like in in some states a school district is um one with the county government and in other places a school district is completely separate from a county government or you may have districts for utilities or for garbage or sewage even right and these are yeah. all governments <laughs> and, and um even looking within like the federal government you have all these various departments which all function as their own governments Yes, and uh, further complicating the matter is laws and statutes, of course, uh, and different legislative sessions are written by different people with different ideas and different conceptions of the law and uh, different uh, um, interpretations of the law. And so you may end up with laws and statutes and regulations that contradict each other. And then sometimes the courts will interpret the law in a different way than the people who wrote it intended it which further complicates things and then all of this is subject to international laws which are held above the states but sort of not and it gets really complicated there but at the end of the day the purpose of all these laws and governments and regulatory bodies and special districts and what have you is to serve society yeah and to make things order, to make things, make everyone stay in their place. Right. And, you know, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the age-old spirit of the law versus letter of the law debate. And um, I think the, uh, the general leftist consensus would be that it is very much the spirit of the law which rules the day. Uh, even those who argue for the letter of the law are really just following the spirit of the law. Um, uh, but the law itself is the spirit. It is a spirit that haunts us. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, it is. Um, but yeah, so I just 
really love that part. Um, it the state is a mess, but it's also order. It's it's a it's an ordered chaos or a chaotic order. I don't know. Uh, it's one or the other. But if disorder, right? True disorder against this messy entangled order of the state if we rebelled against the state's order and if disorder triumphed the state would come to an end yeah on the next page um you know sterner's talking about you know he says writing from his point in time he's saying today's global battle is as they say directed against the established order but people aren't aiming for another state like a people state for example but at their association their combination this ever fluid combination of all that exists a state exists even without my assistance i am born and raised in it placed under an obligation to it and i have to pay homage to it so the independent existence of the state establishes my lack of independence so that the state can develop naturally it applies the shears of civilization to me it gives me an education and culture suitable to it, not to me, and teaches me, for example, to respect the law, to abstain from the violation of state property, etc., etc. But this point in particular, he says, so that the state may develop naturally, it applies the shears of civilization to me, gives me an education and culture suitable to it, not to me. This, earlier today, I, uh, I tweeted something to the effect of, uh, the bourgeoisie are so anal that, um, left-handed people are a marginalized class right i don't know if you saw that but this is what i'm talking about this section right here in sterner right the state needs us to be perfect little cogs in its machine right if even being left-handed threatens the order if we were all left-handed and disorder triumphed the state would come to ruin right and this is actually something that sterner's explored before in uh for the principle of our education and something he wrote before he wrote this book where he discusses the various ways people have suggested education should be done and his critique of all of them as being still in service of the greater ideals of the state or society rather than in service of the individual who's being educated yes and even though he doesn't explicitly say it here in that passage that I just quoted, you know, I use the example of left-handedness, but really, you know, the state is designed for neurotypical and abled people, and it is designed for people of a of a particular ideal which the state has as uh, its its perfect citizen, right? Yeah, definitely. And the state for people who aren't neurotypical, the state can be hell to deal with. Because it's it's specifically designed not for uh, neurodivergent uh, people or people who are not abled or even people who are left-handed. Um, but, you know, and it will apply different shears of civilization, right? Um, you know, uh, people who are neurodivergent may be prescribed certain medications to make them quote-unquote normal, to fit them into uh, society's ideal of what they should be. Or, to, uh, yeah. To cure us. Yes. To cure, yes. Um, of course, to cure in whose eyes? In the eyes of society, right? And that's something he gets to, uh, later when he, uh, yeah, talks about felting. But yeah, uh, he finishes up this. 
paragraph here with saying that the state's education teaches me to be a useful tool, a useful member of society. And something of note, he says, uh, to abstain from a violation of state property, and then in in, uh, parentheses, he says, i.e., private property, where here he's conflating state property and private property, and he's going to get back to that and discuss it in more depth, as we'll uh, see later on in uh, this episode. Now, there was another interesting part of on 236, where he says, I never believed in me, I never believed in my present, I saw myself only in the future. The boy believes that he'll only become a proper I, a proper guy, when he becomes a man the man thinks that only in the afterlife will he be something proper and you know this is to be something proper is another ideal right and you know it's just interesting to me that he lays out um kind of sort of goes on a tangent i suppose with this idea but to point out that you know society isn't the only ideal we'll have ideals of you know oh um, what I need to attain in life, you know, when we're young, we think, oh, when I'm, I'm grown, I'll be a man. And then that's it. That's the ideal. And then when we're older, we'll think, oh, I need to, uh, be a good Christian so I can attain, uh, the ideal of, um, of, of going to heaven of the afterlife. Right. And it's always this something other that we must chase after. And these ideals in one's personal individual development through life uh can actually serve society or serve the state right yes definitely and he talks about it as as uh an i that is neither an i nor a you an imaginary i a phantasm so he's basically hammering in the point that uh this thing you're striving to be this proper man you want to be that's imaginary it's not you the true you is the unique indeed on the next page, he gets to uh, some interesting talk when he talks about uh, people talk of tolerance, of leaving opposing, te- opposing tendencies free, and the like. Traits by which civilized states are distinguished. Indeed, some are strong enough to sit back and watch even the most unconstrained meetings, while others charge their minions to hunt down tobacco pipes. And he's really just going into and discussing the way tolerance kind of tolerance functions within society and how tolerance serves as a sort of control and and he's a uh, doing and i think this is interesting because these days tolerance is used as a control there people are like oh so much for the tolerant left when mm-hmm. we try and do stuff to prevent people from imposing themselves upon us yeah, the state the state's lauded tolerance is simply a tolerance of the inoffensiveness, the innocuous. It is only an elevation above small mindedness, only only a more respectable, more magnificent, prouder despotism. Yeah, and he hits on that again when he says the state always has the sole purpose of limiting, taming, subordinating the individual, of making him subservient to some universality or other. The state is a limitation of me, my restriction, my slavery. Everything is done by the state machine because it moves the cogs of the individual minds, none of which follow their own impulses. Damn. He, he's really tearing into the state here. 
Yeah, I mean, he kicks it up to 11 when he goes on further. He says, uh, you know, uh, people think that the idea of their democratic republics, their enlightened republics, their liberal republics are so great. But he says the republic is nothing else but absolute monarchy. It makes no difference whether the monarch is called a prince or the people since both are a majesty, right? Um, you know, it, it really, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because either either you live under the king or you live under the people, right? This idea, uh, you know, you don't live under the king as an individual. You live under the king as an idea, you know? You live under the people as an idea. And either way, it's despot. He, it's always a rule over you, a tyranny against you. It's never you being able to do as you wish. Same shit, new hat. Old boss. New boss, same as the old boss. But it is interesting because he says um, on 241, the in the constitutional state, absolutism has finally come into conflict with itself because it has broken a duality. The government wants to be absolute and the people want to be absolute. These two absolutes will annihilate each other. Yeah, and he's really, yeah. And he, he talks again about ostracism here, right? What is one to imagine as an organized people, a people that has no more government, one that governs itself, in which, therefore, no I stands out, a people organized by ostracism. The banishment of I's ostracism makes the people into an autocrat. And that's bringing things back to what he was discussing way earlier with uh, yeah, Athenian democracy and how it ends up being ty tyrannical over the individual. On page 242, I found this passage to be quite humorous for a number of reasons. Um, of course, at the time of Stirner's writing, we're in the middle of the, of the 1800s. Um, Germany is in uh, kind of a long transition from being uh, a, a shitload of tiny, uh, delicately more or less aligned uh, states uh, ruled by princes and kings and dukes and whatnot. Uh, it's in the process of being a, a loose association of states into being united under one emperor uh, or, or one king uh, as one state, as one Germany. And Stirner talks about that here very briefly. Uh, he mentions it here when he says, To require the 38 states of Germany to act as one nation can only be placed beside the senseless desire that 38 swarms of bees led by 38 queens should unite into one swarm. Bees, they all, and I think how he continues after that is important. Mm -hmm. Bees, they all remain, but it's not, he had bees as bees that belong together and can unite with each other, but rather only the subservient bees are connected with the ruling queen bees. Bees and peoples are without will, and the instinct of their queen leads them. It doesn't matter if they do actually unite, they'll still be bees ruled by a queen. They'll still be unfree. But I just love this because he's talking about bees. Bees are, are, there's a movie about them. I don't know if you've seen it. A uh, bee movie, you could say. <laughs> but it's funny because he, he talks about beehood, right? If one to refer to the bees, uh, to refer the bees to their beehood, and he's talking, well, you know, we in the same way we could refer to Germans in their Germanhood right and so he, he's kind of talking about nationalism here yeah he's saying now the nationalists are endeavoring to establish the abstract lifeless unity of beehood but the self-owned will fight for self-willed unity 
for association. Here is the feature of all reactionary desires, that they want to set up something universal, something abstract, an empty, lifeless concept, whereas the self-owned strive to unburden the sturdy, lively particular from the tangled mass of generalities. We are not meant to be bees in a swarm, right? We are meant to be individuals. We are meant to be unique. We are not supposed to be tangled up in a swarm, tangled up in a mass of generalities and regulations and rules to be uh, tamed by the shears of civilization. We're meant to be uniques and, and to realize our, our full potentials and our full abilities and capabilities. And uh, Wolfie has an interesting note here, noting that uh, when he speaks of beehood and Germanhood, he's saying bienentum and deutschestum, which is a parallel to eigentum. Just like we have ownness, there's a beeness to us, and a Germanness to us, but our ownness is what we need to win out over that Germanness. So I, I think he uh, gets on to a interesting point uh, later on uh, page two forty seven when he starts talking about the party. Yes, yes. And he here he's meaning party in many senses. He's meaning party in like I'm going to a party but also party as in a political party and he's deliberately playing with the double meanings here and but he seems to be the primary one he's working with is political party mm -hmm. and he's trying to critique the idea of a political party uh, and I I think he does so uh to great effect uh you know um he's specifically talking about parties with a party line right or yes. uh, some sort of central central tenets or s central organization that all members of the party are expected to adhere to lest they be banished from the party yes and he's putting this in uh, contrast with non-partisanship which he uh, talks about as a as essentially egoism you do you don't have a party you're not a partisan you're just for yourself rather than for the party line and you know uh he has this idea of associations right uh you can associate freely as an egoist with other individuals and enter in us into associations large or small they can be large associations but you're free to leave these associations too when they no longer suit your needs as an individual as an egoist yeah and this is something he's been doing throughout uh, my intercourse he's not explicitly bringing up in a, the association of egoists which he uh brought up briefly in my power but he's repeatedly using the same word choice of this association as all over and he's putting association as a sort of intercourse in contrast to society, in contrast to states, in contrast to parties here. And a, a lot of this ends up looking like uh, critiques of Leninism, like decades before Leninism was a thing. Oh, certainly. Um, one thing in particular that I really liked that really just kind of summed up this whole bit, I think, is he says right off the bat, the party is nothing but a state within the state. 
You know, he's already uh, torn into the state. He doesn't need to do it again. So he just <laughs> says, the party's just a state within the state. <laughs> of course, he does go in and, and tear into the party more, right? Yeah, because it's a particular sort of state within the state. Now, it's interesting, you know, you said he's talking about political parties, but he's uh, he's using this word party kind of loosely here. Again, he brings up uh, the idea of Christianity. And he says, entertain any doubt of Christianity, and you are already no longer a true Christian. You have lifted yourself to the audacity of raising a question about it and hauling it before your egoistic judgment seat. You have sinned against Christianity, this party cause, because it is certainly not a cause, for example, for the Jews who are of another party. But good for you. If you don't let yourself be frightened, your audacity helps you to own this. So then can an egoist ever seize onto or take up with a party? Yes. Only he can't let the party seize onto or take him. So you can be an egoist and a Christian, right? As long as you do not allow um, the Christian party to seize you with its ideas, right? Um, yeah. There are certainly Christians who have their disagreements with, there are Catholics who have their disagreements with the church, which is certainly a state uh, institution. Or there are Christians who uh, take up issue with certain parts of the Bible, right? Um, which is very easy to do since the, the book itself is, is pretty laden with contradictions, but uh, <laughs> that's besides the point. Um, you, you could be a Christian without holding its particular stated tenets as some sort of ideal, right? Yeah, and that section in particular seems like a sort of, it seems like it works as a critique of democratic centralism, mm -hmm. where you're allowed to have this debate about things until it's voted on and decided on by the party. But once it's decided on by the party, it becomes a sin against the party to disagree with it, and no one is allowed to disagree. And that ends up forming a state just as much as the bourgeois state is. And it functions in many ways in the same way the bourgeois state functions. The next thing he starts working on here on page 251 is punishment. Yeah, specifically punishment for a crime. Mm-hmm. And here he starts really getting into his critique of uh, the prison system, essentially. Vicky, can I interrupt you real quick? Sure. So we're coming up on 50, we're at 52 minutes right now. Yeah. Um, do you just want to cover this section on crime and punishment and then call it a, call it a night for this one? Uh, sure. How far does the crime and punishment go again? Not terribly far but we can i think we can break this into three episodes all right that that should work yeah okay so you were saying so pun he's here starting to get into punishment as he's sort of sorry let me reset so he's starting to critique here the uh, idea of a criminal justice system and how the justice system functions and stuff and essentially against prisons and punishment and fines and he brings up a uh, Velting, who's a Christian communist. And Velting, uh, Velting lays the blame for crime on social disorder and lives in the expectation that under communist institutions, crimes will be become impossible because the temptations to them, such as money, will be removed. But since his organized society is extolled as sacred and invaluable, he miscalculates in kind-hearted opinion. 
Besides, Velting has to continue with remedies against the natural remainder of human diseases and weaknesses. And remedies always announce at the start that one considers individuals to be called to a certain well-being. And that brings us back to that thing we were discussing earlier about how the state is trying to fix us, to cure us of these problems that it's seeing within us. And Velting makes that more explicit, but it's there in all states as well. When we're being punished, we're not just being punished, but we're they're trying to cure us as if mm -hmm. we're ill. And the, the theory state... of cure runs parallel with the theory of punishment. Indeed. And this also really ties into uh, how the how society treats neurodivergent people because it's seeing us as not well and we need to strive towards this well-being and so it's trying to cure us of this and wolfie notes that uh heil which he translates as well-being can also mean salvation and stirner probably meant both means and felting did too since felting was a christian communist not just a communist now, here he also says something interesting. Punishment follows crime. If crime falls because the sacred disappears, punishment must no less be dragged into its fall, because it too only has meaning in relation to something sacred. Yeah, and he's sort of talking about how punishment isn't, like, a necessary thing. It's, it's only something... necessary because of the idea of crime, the idea of, of an action needing punishment by its very existence yeah it's not that not that necessarily actions won't have consequences but that punishment is a very specific way of dealing with dealing with these consequences yeah it's almost like an artificial consequence it is uh don't remember if it's later than this or earlier than this where he brings it dueling oh yeah i remember the it's it is a little bit later but here he follows up with the criminal code has continued existence only through the sacred and falls to pieces by itself if they give up punishment you know what use is a criminal code if there are no punishments associated with the various crimes right yeah Which i think the dueling example was earlier this sorry i think it's, it was a really good example so i do want to bring it on I uh, can't find it anymore. Oh, yeah, it was earlier on page 250. Uh, the state cannot give up yep, the claim to its laws and regulations are sacred. With this, the individual is considered precisely as the unholy, barbarian, natural, human being, egoist, since he is against the state, which is precisely how the church wants to view him. Uh, so where is the freedom of self-determination? It's altogether another thing, as in North America, for example, society determines to let the duelist bear certain negative consequences of their acts, such as withdrawal from the credit previously enjoyed. To, refu to refuse credit is everyone's affair, and if a society wants to withdraw you know, it for this or that reason, the person affected can't therefore complain about an infringement of his freedom. The society is just asserting its own freedom. This is no penalty for sin, no penalty for a crime. There is a duel, there the duel is no crime, but only an action against which society will take countermeasures, will set a defense. The state, however, stamps the duel as a crime, i.e. a violation of its sacred laws. It makes it a criminal case. 
if society leaves it to the decision of the individual whether he wants to draw negative consequences and inconveniences to himself by his actions, and in this way recognizes his free decision, then the state does just the opposite, denying all, right, denying all rights to the individual's decision, and confers only right to his own decision, its own decision, state law, so that anyone who goes against the state's commandments will be looked upon as if he had gone against God's commandments, a view which the church also wants maintained. So here he's setting up this difference between consequences from state punishment and consequences from people not liking what you did. He's trying to, he's critiquing what it put criminal justice as imposing itself upon everyone, not just the person being punished, because we all must accept that this punishment is deserved, rather than having us each individually look upon the act and decide for ourselves whether or not we want to give it negative consequences. And by doing that, it imposes its sacred laws upon everyone rather than allowing us the free choice within society, within our intercourse with others, to choose whether or not we think that is deserving of consequences. Yeah, I mean, that example really lays it out. And a, a duel is a good example because obviously there are natural immediate consequences to uh, <laughs> one or both of the participants in a duel, right? Yeah. Um, but then uh, if you survive the duel, you have artificial consequences imposed upon you by the state your duel has been deemed to be a crime and because it is a crime because you committed a crime because you are a criminal you must be punished by the state against uh whom you have criminaled against you have crime sinned. you have done crime <laughs> against yeah. whom you have sinned yes against whom you have sinned um you have you have done a a heckin harm to uh and so the, the state must do a, a heckin' harm back upon ye in the form of punishment. And this serves as a very good anarchistic critique of the criminal justice system by saying that the way, the way punishment is imposed constrains everyone within society rather than allowing us to create negative consequences of our own volition. And the negative consequences don't go away with the abolition of crime and the abolition of the state, but they are no longer imposed upon us. They're no longer a sacred thing, but they're a thing that happens. They're a consequence, not a punishment. Is there any more in the crime and punishment section that you want to cover? Uh, no, there's nothing else, else in this section I want to cover. Right after he starts going into uh, discussions of people you know in the state and humanity in order to get into his discussion of property and i believe we will cover that in the next episode yeah so that does it for this one that's part one of probably what's looking like three parts on my intercourse um sterner's dense it's definitely ending up being a lot longer of a series than i had imagined but also uh, a very enjoyable and rewarding read i think definitely and an enjoyable and rewarding discussion indeed so that's it for this one folks thanks for tuning in vicky thank you for joining me thank you for having me on
catch uh, catch the next one, guys, uh, in a week or, or two weeks or whenever the hell we feel like releasing it because schedules are a phantasm. Peace out. Peace out.